This evening we're going to look at the unsearchable riches of Christ and our passage is Ephesians chapter 3, the whole chapter, verses 1 through to 21. The church at Ephesus consisted in part of people who were Jews by descent and they were called the circumcision. The males amongst those Christians were circumcised in the flesh and that was a sign and a seal of the old covenant relationship that God had with ancient Israel. However, the majority of the Ephesian believers were Gentile by descent and they were the uncircumcision. It was seen that they were described in chapter 2 verse 12 as having been aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, they were nevertheless brought near to God by the Lord Jesus Christ, who made atonement at the cross for them and the Jewish believers as well, those of Gentile descent and those of Jewish descent. It made no difference. The Lord Jesus Christ he laid down his life, pouring out his blood for both. When he, when he was, when he came into the world as the sacrificial lamb of God. Coming now to chapter three, first of all, Paul considers his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. We see that in the first thirteen verses that I read to you. The first thirteen verses are a consideration of the apostolic ministry of Paul to the Gentiles. Paul, having just said in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, that the Lord Jesus Christ has, by the blood of his cross, reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to God, and having just said that the believers in Ephesus, who were Gentiles by descent, were no more strangers, but fellow citizens with all the saints, that is, all the believing people throughout all ages, and that they were now part of a holy temple built upon the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, he gives that as the reason why he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. It is precisely because Paul went around on his missionary journeys preaching the riches of God's salvation grace to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews that his Jewish countrymen rounded on him and they even sought to kill him. They didn't like hearing Paul talk about God's grace towards the uncircumcised Gentiles. They accused him before the Roman authorities and ultimately Paul was taken as a prisoner to Rome. In verse 2, far from moaning about being a prisoner of Christ in Rome because of his ministry to the Gentiles, Paul described his apostolic office as a dispensation of the grace of God. This is despite all his sufferings for Christ's sake. He described it as a dispensation of the grace of God. In other words, as far as Paul was concerned, he was the recipient of undeserved favour from God. 
Having once been dead in his trespasses and sins, and we saw quite a lot about that in chapter 2, how people who are not trusting in Christ are dead in trespasses and sins. And such was Paul before um, he came to faith in Jesus. And at that time, when he was dead in trespasses and sins, he he considered it um, his duty to go around persecuting the church, wasting the church, breathing murderous, murders and thunderings against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, having been quickened, having been saved and justified by the grace of God, uh, according to God's grace, he considered it a tremendous privilege and a tremendous joy to suffer for Christ's sake as a result of his apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. Every time someone hurled insults at him, every time he was beaten, every time he was thrown into a jail, he considered it a privilege that having been dead in trespasses and sins, he was serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I say, in verse 2 there, he, he considered it a dispensation of the grace of God to him. Also in verse 7, not only do we see Paul attributing his apostolic ministry to the grace or the totally undeserved favour of God, but also to the power of God. Look at verse 7 there. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. We see the grace of God, we see the power of God there in that verse. It is a grace and a power that first and foremost made Paul a new creature in Christ. So much so that he was able to say uh, in his epistle to the Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and who gave himself for me. And when you consider those words, and when you, if you're able to, to say those same words from your heart, a heart filled with thanksgiving, then it really doesn't matter uh, what you go through. Uh, if you are in a privileged situation whereby you're serving the King of Kings as someone who has been raised up to newness of life and saved and justified by faith in Jesus. Even though Paul was once a religious Jew uh, who, as I say, went around... um, breathing murder against the church by the grace and power of God. He had been quickened, he'd been saved, been justified and he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. In verse 3, details are given of the divine grace that was dispensed to Paul. It included receiving infallible knowledge directly from God. That knowledge is referred to as a mystery in that it was not something that could be worked out by any human reason. 
Instead, God revealed it to Paul directly. I don't imagine for one second that any of today's so-called apostles can honestly claim to have had mysteries revealed to them directly by God. The mystery that was revealed to Paul is what has already been considered in chapter 2, which he reiterates, he says again in chapter 3, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That's the mystery that God revealed to Paul, that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs with the Jews of the promise of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That promise of spiritual and everlasting blessings was first given to Abraham 2,000 years before the Son of God became flesh and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, where he laid down his life as an atonement for the sins of all who would ever believe in him. It is a promise that has its fulfilment in Christ and all who are trusting in him. As it's written in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Greeks are a subset of the Gentiles. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's the promise delivered to Abraham. And we follow that promise all the way through the Old Testament and into the New. The promise of great blessings for Jews and Gentiles alike. All who are in Christ, trusting in him as their saviour from sin. The mystery that Paul speaks of here in verse 3. That mystery that God revealed to Paul had not previously been a total secret, had it? It wasn't a complete secret before being revealed to Paul that there would be salvation blessings to the Gentiles. Any careful reader of the Old Testament would know that there would be blessings towards the Gentiles. For example, Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6, God says to his son, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. So where's the mystery? Paul says it's a mystery that uh, God revealed to him. Yet we find... um, Revelation in the Old Testament about God saving Gentiles. However, as the New Testament commentator William Hendrickson pointed out concerning those Old Testament prophecies, what these prophets did not make clear was that in connection with the coming of the Messiah and the outpouring of the Spirit, the old theocracy would be completely abolished and in its place would arise a new organism in which the Gentiles and the Jews would be placed on a footing 
of perfect equality. We don't really see that in the Old Testament, that perfect equality. Paul makes it very clear that God's unveiled secret or mystery has to do not merely with an alliance of Jew and Gentile or perhaps a friendly agreement to live together in peace or even an outward combination of partnership, but on the contrary, with a complete and permanent fusion, a perfect spiritual union of formerly clashing elements into one new organism, even a new humanity. In God's house, there are no borders, all are children. And this is what becomes very clear in the teaching, that uh, the doctrine of the Apostle Paul that was revealed to him directly by God. That the Jews and the Gentiles would be together, equal in Christ. The result of Jews and Gentiles being brought together as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and as children of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who has purified them with his blood and adorned them with his righteousness can be seen in verse 12 where it says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Again, let's just remember this. Paul was himself a Jew, uh, born a Jew, and he's speaking to Gentile believers here. And he says, in whom we have boldness. Jews and Gentiles alike who are trusting in Jesus have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him, of Jesus. So in verse 12, Paul was saying that we, again, the believing Jews and Gentiles, have a free and fearless confidence, indeed a 100% hope of entering into our heavenly rest. Similarly, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, it is written, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he have consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. The temple in Jerusalem had a thick veil that barred people from entering into the most holy place and even the Jewish high priest was permitted through that veil just once a year and and only then with the blood of animal sacrifices. However, when the Lord Jesus Christ shed his own precious blood and laid down his life at the cross, it is written in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51, that the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. If you were were able to rip a curtain, you'd rip it from the bottom and all the way up. But we're told that the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. That was a supernatural tearing of a very thick curtain and it signified the entrance into heaven and into the presence of God had been achieved by Jesus for all his redeemed, Jews and Gentiles alike. But you don't have to wait until you die to enter into the holiest. For one thing, if you belong to Jesus, you are in him 
and he is your temple. You worship God in Christ, your temple. Also, as has already been considered back in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, if you are trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin, you are sealed with with God, the Holy Spirit, and he is the earnest or the deposit of your heavenly inheritance. With that divine seal, the Holy Spirit as your seal, you have an absolutely certain hope of going where Jesus now is when you die. You have no, you have no need to fear death. When you die, you go into the presence of Jesus to behold his glory. And Paul, the apostle, said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's not just Paul that said those things. All Christians should be able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because we have that boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And even now you stand before the throne of God accepted in his beloved Son. Coming now to verse 14, we can consider Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And the rest of the chapter, or or much of the rest of the chapter, is a prayer. Having considered Paul's apostolic ministry to the Gentiles and considering his sufferings and all that he's endured uh, in that ministry as a a, uh, dispensation of God's grace towards him, We consider his prayer for the Ephesians. Look at verse 14 there, where the prayer actually starts. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 15, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. In verse 14, the Greek word for father is pateia. I'm not going to give you a Greek lesson here, but this is quite interesting. uh, The Greek word for father is pateia. And in the very next verse, verse 15, the Greek word for family is patria, which not only sounds uh, similar, rather, but it is derived from pateia. So the Greek word for family is derived from the Greek word for father. You can see that close connection between the two, father and family. Father in verse 14 and family in verse 15. Therefore, the close connection between the heavenly father and his adopted family is set forth in the opening words of Paul's prayer as he brings together the very close relationship that exists between God and his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and also between God and all who are trusting in Jesus as their Saviour and their Lord. Paul bows his knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, Christians throughout all ages, the family of God. 
The so-called Jehovah's Witnesses claim that only an anointed class of 144,000 people are the sons of God. How wrong they are. All who are quickened, saved, justified by the grace of God are the family of God and God is their heavenly father. In fact, John chapter 1 and verse 12 makes it very clear that Jesus himself gives all who receive him and believe on his name the power, the right, the privilege to become sons and daughters of of God. And this wonderful truth is contained in the opening words of Paul's prayer. Straight away, he introduces them to that close relationship that they have with God, their Heavenly Father. The actual prayer for the Ephesians comes in four parts, with one request, one prayer request, leading to the next. First of all, Paul prayed for the Ephesians to be strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. That is something you as a Christian do well to pray for, for yourself and for others, to be strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. Where the inner man is not physical, the inner man is your soul, your spirit, your heart. That which is not physical and where uh, all your influences, your desires are seated in the inner man. And deep within you, in your inner man, what are your desires? And what is it that influences you? Deep within you. Do you desire to do your will or do you desire to do the will of God? Again, in the inner man. Although outwardly, you and I may exercise a certain degree of self-control as Christians... You have no control over the inner man, neither do I, do we? None at all. We, we, can, we know that we shouldn't do this and we shouldn't do that and we don't do it. But what happens in the inner man? That's a different thing altogether. As such, dear Christian, you do well to pray that the Holy Spirit who abides in the inner man would work deep within you to the end that even though your outward man perishes, your inward man would be renewed day by day and you would do that which is pleasing to God with thanksgiving in your heart and it would proceed from deep within this desire to do that which is pleasing to God. And you wouldn't be doing it just out of some religious duty and because people are watching you perhaps but it would be your heart's desire to do that which is pleasing to God. Because you are the recipient of every spiritual blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that strengthening of the inner man by God, the Holy Spirit, leads to the next thing that Paul prayed for, a deeper experience of Christ, who is said to dwell in hearts by faith. Look at that in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Understand that God dwells wherever he permanently, permanently manifests his presence and since God permanently manifests his presence with his children, with Christians, God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit 
are described as being in Christ. We're used to the idea of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but here we read that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And Christ is present and he dwells in all his people by faith. Thirdly, Paul did not pray that the Ephesians would grow in their love for Jesus, though that most certainly is something well worth praying for. He prayed that the indwelling Christ would enable the Ephesians to comprehend or lay hold of the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of his love for them. And that love of Christ is the love of the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. We should never lose sight of the fact that it is the love of God, as a, but it is best seen in the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life at Calvary's cross. God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is a love that passes knowledge and can only be known through revelation in the hearts of those whom God indwells by faith. In people in whom Jesus dwells by faith. As the hymn writer said, the love of Jesus, what is it? None but his loved ones know. How true that is. You have to know Jesus, don't you? Uh, you, you have to know Jesus to know his love, that great love of God that is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Fourthly, and following on from the other three prayer points, Paul prayed that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's in verse 19, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. To be filled with all the fullness of God speaks of being conformed to the image of Christ. And that must surely be the chief desire of all the redeemed of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the consequence of being strengthened deep within you, in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. And it is the consequence of Christ indwelling you by faith. And it is the consequence of laying hold of the love of Christ for you his Calvary love for you, inevitably to be filled with all the fullness of God means to be conformed to the image of Christ. How are those things to be achieved? By praying as Paul did and also by reading the scriptures prayerfully of course and by letting the words of Christ dwell in you richly as you think upon the immeasurable love of Jesus for you. And you do all those things by the grace and by the power of God that worketh deep within you. And finally, Paul finished his prayer with an acknowledgement that nothing is too great for God to accomplish by his infinite power working in the saints for his glory. He said in verse 20 and 21, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. 
Amen and Amen.